Psalm 8, how majestic is your name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, just thank you for tonight, for the fact that we have a place to meet, to hear from your word and to hear from you and to meet with you. I pray that you'll speak to us, that you will give words to Pip as he teaches tonight, that you'll just just reveal truths of the gospel to us, reveal truths of the scriptures to us. Uh, open our ears and our minds and our hearts to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Evan. Thank you, boss. Um, great to be here with you guys. You know, I love wearing this headset because I feel like I'm in a boy band. But a boy band in which the main singer sits down and exegetes scripture. Um, so... We're going to be reading through Genesis 32. Genesis 32. So if you open up your Bibles to that. Um, <clears throat> just a little, uh, well, one heads up. Kind of a little bit of a cough or something going on right before I came on here, as, as it would be. So bear with me. Um, but what I was going to say is Genesis 32, just want to give a little bit of a recap, just a reminder. So Jacob is Isaac's son. He is the second-born son. Uh, well, twins, right? But he came out second, and he came out holding his brother Esau's heel. And Jacob ends up, he gets uh, Esau's birthright. He tricks his own father uh, for the firstborn blessing. He flees, um, and then, then he realizes his brother's going to kill, like his brother's planning on killing him. So he flees um, to his uncle Laban's place, which is in Paddan Aram. So he flees. On his way, he meets the Lord, he sees these angels ascending and descending a stairway in a dream, and he said he would follow, God made good promises to him, said he would take care of him, and he said he'd follow God if God provided for him. Um, he ends up getting tricked by Laban into marrying uh, the elder sister, which he did not want to marry, so that's Leah, and then uh, when, uh, in fact, he was seeking to marry Rachel, so he marries both of them. He, he ends up leaving. He kind of uses a, a form of deception to try to get Laban's, the best of Laban's livestock. He flees. Um, Laban pursues him. And this, this has just ended that Laban has pursued him. And he has kind of reconciled. I'm not sure if reconciled. That seems like too strong a word. But he has, he has made a covenant with Laban that he would, they were kind of a non-aggression pact of sorts. So Genesis 32, we're picking up. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So just want to pause there quickly and point out that 
as Jacob was fleeing Canaan, the promised land, because his brother was going to kill him, as he's fleeing, he actually met, um, he had this angelic encounter. We saw these, this stairway and, and angels ascending and descending, right? So as he left that land and he's, enter, about to, he's going on to enter um, Laban's area, right? He had an angelic encounter. And now as he's entering back into that land, he has another angelic encounter. And this particular passage, we're not given a whole lot of, we're not really given any further details other than, okay, the angels of God met him. Uh, and he says, this is God's camp. And that name, uh, Mahanaim, means roughly something like two camps or double camp. Um, I think most likely that is referring to Jacob's camp and God's camp, like this kind of meeting of two, two parties, as it were. And Jacob has with him, he has a whole bunch of his livestock, he has his wives and kids, right? Um, though there is a, it is also worth noting that there's also two camps that have just met, and that's Laban and Jacob. And actually, later in the passage, we're going to see he's about to split into two camps. So just keep that in mind, interesting thing going on with wordplay. And again, there are passages in the Bible which are very, very clear as to what's going on, and it's made explicit. And there are other passages in the Bible which are left somewhat mysterious. They're not necessarily elaborated upon. And that, to me, is actually one of the beauties of the Bible, that there are things that are crystal clear and we can understand, and there are other things which, are honest, which feel... I think the word I would use is numinous, numinous, meaning just like there's this spiritual quality to them, this mysterious quality, there's this quality like I am reading a narrative and there's way more going on in this narrative and in the world in a sense than I can fully take in or that is just like made clear to me here. And I think this passage is one of them. So he's met, angel, met angels in some sense there and we aren't really given many other details in that, but we'll keep going. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau's brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have, journey, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And notice the deferential language there. He calls Esau his brother. He calls him his lord. He says, I'm your servant. Uh, he said, calls him his Lord twice within just the, the same short, uh, short communication. And he's also telling him, hey, I have all this stuff. And uh, I wonder if what's happening here isn't that he's kind of communicating, hey, I'm not coming to like do, claim the birthright and take stuff from you. I, ha- I'm kind of, I have all this stuff already. I'm not looking to like, this isn't, I'm not coming in to be aggressive and, and take things. Because remember, Laban, I mean, the, the actual words, he says, the days of mourning... This is back in Genesis 27. He said, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother. So there is no ambiguity at this point as to what, is, what Esau wants, to the best of Jacob's recollection, and the best of ours. The narrative has not given us any more information on Esau up until, the point, up until this point. The last we've seen, Esau is just bent on revenge. So, uh, and the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So, I mean, understandably so, right? You just ripped off your brother, uh, then you fled, you haven't seen him in 20 years, and you come back, you send like this like, very deferential, like, Hey, I'm coming back. Uh, I, I'm your servant. Like, let me, you know, like, you're, you're, the, you're, you're incredible. I'm, I'm not, I've got my own stuff. It's fine. And then there's no message back. Esau says nothing other than just like, oh, there's 400 men coming with Esau. Like, that's pretty alarming. So 
Jacob, he divided the people who were with him and the, two, and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. There's that phrase again. Thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Esau, and we've, I'm sorry, Jacob, we've seen again and again, he is somebody who is, people call him a schemer in many commentaries, right? That's kind of what he's known for. He's always trying to like kind of work the angles as, a, as it were and ensure his safety and survival. You get the feeling that Jacob is somebody who just is scrapping in life, is just like desperately just trying to like have control in some, in some way, trying to have control. And then so here he's thinking, okay, well, we'll split into two camps. If part of the camp is decimated, at least some people will, will remain. And we'll see how later, we'll see how he splits up those camps and what that says about uh, who he loves, what his priorities are. But it's interesting here that right after that, it says, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So I just want to pause here for a moment. And really, I think it's, there's a clear turning point here. You know, in, in biblical characters' lives and in our lives, there are all these, there's these turning part, points, these kind of hinges where the decisions that the characters make will be determine the rest of their lives and the arc of the rest of their lives, right? And this is one of those. So I think it's interesting too that when you put this in context, not just simply of Jacob's life, because we've seen the ways in which Jacob has sought to, to have all these kind of schemes that play out in order to assure his own safety and survival, but we also see that ja- like, there th- there's a theme throughout Genesis, right, of control, of all the machinations that people undertake to maintain control of their lives, to attempt to at least maintain the illusion of control, right? So, I mean, you kind of think of just, okay, the fall, right? Uh, Adam and Eve, from the very start, the initial lie is like, is the idea of like wanting to be like God, wanting to take something that God has said not to take, but to take it, to be like God, because there's a lack of trust in God, the idea that God is holding back something, right? That's the lie of the serpent. Do you, did, do you really trust God? Did God really say? So from there, we see Eve does that, right? Adam and Eve do that. They try to be like God. They're trying to take control of life, of kind of just the raw materials of life and do like, I'm going to get knowledge. If God won't let me get, you know, knowledge by myself, power in a sense, then I will get it by myself. And then we see, um, right after Cain and Abel, we see Lamech, who's one of, um, who's mentioned uh, very early on in Genesis 4, and he says, like, well, if somebody, somebody attacks me, if some, uh, I will avenge them not just seven times, but 77 times, 77 times. So there's just a sense of, like, brutality and, like, disproportionate uh, reactions and just the sense of like, I will, people will know me that if they mess with me, there will be absolute destruction re, like wrought upon them. And so that again, is it a control attempt, right? And then you see Tower of Babel, that's people wanting to reach the heavens. It's a control thing. We see Abraham, Abram lying about his wife, saying that she's his sister out of sheer fear that somebody's going to take her, right? Um, and harm him. You see Sarai and Abram, like God makes this promise, I'm going to bless you with a child in your old age. And you see Sarai 
seeking to, okay, the promise doesn't appear to be happening in the timeline that we have, and so here's my servant, Hagar, impregnate her. Like, this'll be, this'll be somebody taking control and trying to make the, God's promises come about their own way. Um, so again and again and again, we see that. We even see it, like, in terms of, like, not just Laban cheating Jacob, but then we see these two women competing for Jacob's love. We see Rachel and Leah, right? And Rachel, at one point, uses mandrakes, uh, just like an, uh, a root, in an attempt to have kids. We see Leah trying to use her kids in an attempt to win Jacob's love. Uh, so again and again and again, we see just like all these patterns of control and all these various like stratagems that people resort to instead of trusting the Lord, which the fear in that is like, I am trusting somebody outside myself, bigger than me, who I, I can't really manipulate. Like, you can't manipulate God. There's a surrender that happens in that. And what's beautiful is to think of there's that pattern, but here we see Jacob actually, actually turning to God and voluntarily, like, turning in surrender. Voluntarily, I mean, he's, he's pressed. He's in a tight spot. He realizes he's, he has no control. But nonetheless, he's turning. And, you know, in this, there's so many beautiful things in this prayer that we can see. One is Jacob, like, he quotes God's own promises. He, he says, like, Lord, you said to return to your country and to your kin, kindred that I may do good. And he says at the end, too, he quotes uh, about God's promises. So he's clinging to God's promises. And then he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. And again and again and again, right, in the Bible, we are told that God is God of steadfast love. We're told what his character is. When we arrive at crisis points in our lives, right, when things are tough, or even just when you feel just upset or despairing, you know, just like the news, right, or just looking around in Portland, just remembering again and again God's character. And actually, that can be, like, of absolutely vital, too, even when you're, like, wrestling through Scripture, like, trying to understand Scripture, and there's passages you don't understand or things like, oh, what's, what's going on here? Something uh, a, a pastor told me once when I was just kind of wrestling with a particular doctrinal kind of thing, I just remember him telling me, like, to look to God's character, to remember God's character. And again and again and again, when you, when you come to these things, remi reminding yourself of that, like, okay, even if I can't get my head around a particular situation or what to do or what, what the dynamic is, I can trust God's character. I can kind of, kind of just stop and return to the simple truths that I can hold on to, right? God's character is good. He's a God of steadfast love. He is faithful. He shows faithful, continuous love. So, Jacob does that, right? Um, and we're told that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus says, tells us that, like, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we see this playing out with Jacob. In fact, I, I would argue that here you have a vision of manhood, of what it means to be truly human, just in a, that is, stands in contrast to, like I said, Lamech, earlier, right? He has this sense of bluster and violence, and it's interesting that many images of manhood, which just throughout, throughout the ages, throughout different cultures, there's a vision of, like, true manhood is kind of, like, born in, <laughs> born in violence, or this sense of, like, I will grab life by the reins, and if it doesn't go my way, I will crush it, right? This uh, sense of, of power growing out of the barrel of a gun, which I believe Chairman Mao said, right? So there's this, there is a vision of that which has come up through all cultures and continues to rear its head. But here we have a different vision of manhood, of human beings being the way they're supposed to be, that instead of a heart of violence or taking it into our own hands, 
there's a heart of vulnerability and trust in God and even like an admission of helplessness, of helplessness. Um, Jacob says, talks about the hand of Esau. He says, I, for I fear him. He doesn't hide from God the fact that he's, he's terrified, right? He doesn't have to hide it. It is vulnerability. It is the opposite of manipulation. So all of those things said, like a beautiful vision of what a prayer should be. Uh, verse 13, so he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Um, so a great present for family, right? I mean, I know gift, gift season is coming up, right? Like it's kind of a classic present you give to your brother um, when he's out for your blood. So he sends all this, uh, he sends all this stuff, he, these he hands over, he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother meets you and asks you to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And, to, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with a present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Perhaps he will accept me. So the, pre the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. And it's interesting that Jacob has made this, has had this prayer, right, calling out to God and seeking to rely on God's promises, and yet he's also taking these actions here. Um, you know, I think some commentators see a faithlessness in that. I wouldn't necessarily, I don't think the text says that, so I wouldn't necessarily read that in. I mean, I think that is a fine reading, but I wouldn't necessarily read that in. i just say like, oh, Jacob took action after that. He's seeking to appease Esau, and we'll see. Um, We'll see what Esau's reaction is in a minute. But the same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. That's that stream. Um, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. So I think there's a similarity here both in terms of where he's at. He's on this kind of threshold moment of entering into the land. Uh, and it reminds us it's happening at night and it reminds us of the visitation he had when he had saw that stairwell, right? When he saw the stairwell 20 years ago as he was entering into the land. And it says, uh, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And again, this is a passage in scripture. I love how mysterious it is. We have like the very quotidian, the, the everyday, the very like understandable, like, okay, Jacob's fleeing from his brother. It's kind of things happening in the world of human relationships that we understand. And he's sending, he's sending all this stuff ahead to appease his brother. But then we have this thing, which is almost like this interruption into the story itself. Um, yeah, love, love the mystery of this. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And something else I want to notice here, uh, note here is, as, as Josh and he have pointed out, there's a lot going in the, on in the original Hebrew text of these. And there's even like just forms of word, word play and very subtle things happening that are hard to necessarily get through in translation. But one of those here would be, um, and pardon my Hebrew uh, enunciation here, but is Jacob, whose name is Jacob, right? Jacob is there by the Jabbok, this, this river, so the Yabok, 
and he is wrestling, which is ye'ebak, or ye'ebak. So, just to like a subtle wordplay that's, in, that's happening, it's interesting when you look at the literary, this is something that I personally have just been growing and my mind has been opening up more and more to the literary sophistication of the Bible and just the, 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 the subtle things that are happening in the actual telling of Scripture, in the material that's selected, in the way that's selected, in the actual just phrases used. There is so much going on here, um, just vast subtlety. So, anyway, just a cool point. So, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So I just want to pause there. This man appears, we're not told where he came from, who he is, we're not given his name at this point, right? There's no indication that he was an inhabitant of the land, we're not told his tribe or anything like that. He's this man who just appears, similar in some sense to Melchizedek, who, as you recall, he just, he appears um, as Abraham is coming back from, uh, from the slaughter of the kings. So Melchizedek appears out of nowhere and has this interaction with Abraham, and here we have another man appearing out of nowhere and wrestling. I mean, I, I don't know how that happened. Just a guy came over out of the darkness and just starts grappling. I mean, I kind of think that's probably what happened. I don't know. Uh, but it's interesting, too, that the man, it says that he did not prevail against Jacob. He did not prevail, and yet he touched his hip socket, and the, the Hebrew for that apparently could even be translated as like, touched lightly. Some translations say struck, but apparently it's touched lightly or touched. So there's a sense of like, it's not like the guy all of a sudden just whacks him in the, in, the, in the hip, in the side to like, okay, I'm losing, just like, I'll just pound him and that'll do it. There's even a just, there's a sense of like, oh, something supernatural is happening. This guy, this man has some sort of power that you can't really explain. And his whole hip is put out of joint and remains so. So there's a sense there even that like, okay, this guy says he couldn't prevail and yet it appears that he could easily do such a thing. So if he could put his hip out of joint by just a mere touch, then it seems like he could completely destroy Jacob if he wanted to, but he chooses not to. He chooses not to. So there's just something there's like hints here. It's like, okay, there's like something happening divine. There's some sense of power that's happening. This is more than a mere man. Um, so we have that. And it's interesting too that here he, and he renames him. When you think of like, okay, um, he, he renames him. Who has the power to rename somebody? Who would just appears out of the darkness to, and wrestles with you and just says, I'm going to give you a new name. So it's interesting there too. Um, and the name, so Jacob, as you recall, his original name if, in 27, right after, uh, or in, in, earlier in Genesis, right after he's born, he's called Jacob, which has a sense, some, something going on with heel, like heel grabber. Um, some some commentators take it as like Jacob's name was originally a positive thing that like he was a heel he came after Esau immediately in birth and there's a sense of him like grabbing his heels or being right at his heels but that could be taken as like oh he's like got his back he's his brother and he, there's like a, a, a sweet relationship there and he's he's behind him all the way but clearly that name takes on a like negative connotations because in Genesis 27 after Jacob um Tricked, uh, tricked his father in order to get the birthright, uh, Esau exclaims, 
Jacob is the right name for him. Jacob is the right name for him. So there, there's a sense in which his name becomes like heel grab from some sort of sense like maybe he has his back because you're not going to, you're probably not going to name your kid just like heel, like a negative, like, oh yeah, he's a, he's a complete trickster. I'm not going to name my kid trickster or sneaky bones, right? But uh, I don't know where that came from, <laughs> but, uh, but, and that's, that's my vow. I will not name any further children sneaky bones, but sneaky bones, um, so Jacob, there's a sense like, okay, so the name is like changed with Jacob's actions and it has become corrupted by Jacob's character, by the scheming which he's known for. But here, this, this figure, this man says, no longer shall you be Jacob, but Israel. Now Israel, there's like, I've read kind of different, some different translation takes on what that actually means, but um, L in that, the E-L, that refers to God. And one, like, seems like generally accepted as it's God, God fights, but I've also heard it could be, t- could be taken as he who strives with God. He who strives with God. And what an appropriate name even if that were the case because there's a sense in which Jacob has been wrestling throughout life. You get the feeling it's somebody who has a sense that the world's against him and he's just wrestling through all these things. Um, and here, his wrestlings kind of culminate finally in, in a wrestling match with, as we'll see, God himself. God himself. Names are super important in the Bible, and renaming is something that happens throughout the Bible, both in terms just straight from Abraham being Abram and being renamed Abraham, um, all the way to, through to in Revelation. Jesus actually says that he will give um, to people who hold fast to him, that he will actually give them a new name known only to those who receive it. So that, there's a mystery to that passage. I don't fully know what it means or refers to, but there's something beautiful and powerful happening there because names connotate identity. They have to do with a primal, a primal piece of who we are. So in any case, uh, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of, that, of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. And that word Peniel, um, and it's an, a different version of spelling, Penuel, we'll see in a minute, uh, means face of God, face of God. So for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So I could, we could talk for a long time about the exact identity of this man, right? Um, in any case, it's recognized as a divine encounter. In uh, Hosea, actually, in Hosea 12, it speaks of ja- speaking of Jacob. It says, uh, "In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his man and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor." There is, and Jacob himself says, "I have seen God face to face." So, some people see this as like, okay, this is angel, an angel of the Lord, like angel translated actually messenger, so it's a messenger of the Lord. But for some, and I I tend towards this, it's actually the Lord himself. And there's actually instances when what people call uh, the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, in which there are figures who appear who there is, there are various tip-offs that this is not merely an angel, but could in fact be what some people say is the angel of the Lord, which is a phrase that crops up in the Old Testament. Obviously, there's a lot here for us to, that we could get into, but we get, we'll keep going. But to kind of just summarize in a sense, people view this as like, okay, Jesus is entering into history, representing the Lord, and angel of the Lord is a phrase that you could actually 
theoretically call, speak of Jesus as because there's a sense of messenger, sense of solidarity in terms of that. And you see that some figure, the figure of the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament comes up at different times. It came up uh, when Abraham, uh, Abraham was talking to the three men about the fate of Sodom. Uh, there, that the angel of the Lord there actually speaks first person for the Lord. It's this, the text actually switches to there's three men and then it actually says the Lord speaking here. So that seems, that feels compelling to me that in fact there is like the pre-incarnate Christ happening there because we're told that no one can see the God Father face to face and live. And yet there's some, clearly there's a wrestling match. There's like definitely seeing one another to some extent, though perhaps there's a hint there that, that uh, the dawn is coming and the figure says like, let me go before the day is breaking. In any case, divine figure here, divine messenger, and the Lord is working with Jacob. There's a blessing, and Jacob walks away with a limp. And I love the beauty even of just like, is of, uh, we see Jacob slash Israel. The names will kind of switch back and forth throughout the text as we'll see. But he's, he's entered, he entered, exited out of the land in fear, and he's coming back, but now with a limp. And the sun is rising, and he's got this limp, and there's a sense of, you know, the sun rising. What a beautiful note for somebody with a new identity. So, on to uh, chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. So we, we've seen already that Rachel is dearest to Jacob's heart, and we see that Rachel and Joseph are put last of all. And it's interesting because you think, oh, I wonder how that felt for the kids who, this is a formative event, they're entering in and they're kind of placed at the back, which I think you could, you could imply that, oh, I think that may play out when later Joseph's brothers tried to kill him. But in any case, Rachel and Joseph last of all, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And you know, it does, the text doesn't say, but I just imagine Joseph, uh, Jacob having this mix inside him at this point of just like, man, okay, he's had this divine encounter. God has promised to take care of him. He's prayed. He's trusting God. And also, he's bro his brother, he's coming with 400 men, and he's like coming towards him and bowing every, you know, I don't know how many steps, but bowing seven times. And I would just imagine a sense of just a racing heart, you know, you can, you can trust in God and, and believe that he's going to take care of you and still feel shaky and just like, uh, I don't know, I don't know about all this. And I think there's a sense in which likely that's what's happening with Jacob. But then there is an astonishing turn, which we, the readers, have not been prepared for because no, we've given no hint of Esau's emotional state changing since the last time we saw him where he makes a vow to kill, uh, where he says he's going to kill his brother. But here we go, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And I think there's just a sense of catharsis in that, in that one sentence, so much packed into that, so much emotion, so much just the weeping together. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And I love even just the, the passage. You know, there's passages in the Bible where you're like, okay, why are they, why is it telling me 
about the servants drawing near and bowing down and then uh, Leah doing it with her children and then Joseph and Rachel. But I think there's a sense, there's almost like a, a feeling of it's evocative and it, there's even like a courtliness, I imagine, to this. Like one by one, these different groups bowing down in this beautiful time of reconciliation. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Still, Jacob is speaking deferentially. I, I'd imagine back in the, oops, sorry, in the back of his mind, he's thinking like, oh man, like is, is Esau's heart going to turn here? Is he actually going to be like, ah, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy you. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. And you know what he says there? I mean, it could be true to my read, which I know nothing about livestock, saying that if the livestock are driven hard by one day, they're all going to die. That sounds kind of dramatic to me. And I would imagine what's happening here is Jacob still has a sense of distrust and he's still playing this kind of, he's kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't know how this is going to go down. But one of, the, one of the things that the Bible often does is there's a withholding of, like, necessarily a statement of what's going on inside people, right? It doesn't say Jacob is saying this out of fear. There's no, like, adverbs attached to this. It just says, this is what he said, and then we, we can kind of examine it. And I think it's the reason, I think, I think one of the reasons the Bible does withhold this stuff is because it's an invitation to think, to ponder on it, to kind of, like, chew it and think, okay, what is happening? And as you read more and more, especially if you read, as you read more and more over the years and you return it a little bit older, a little bit wiser, oftentimes you kind of have new insights on, oh, I think this is what's going on here. But in any case, it doesn't say. So Esau said, let me leave with some of the people who are, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and was built and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. So that actually means shelters. And Jacob came safely to the land of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. Then he, there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. El Elohe Israel Al. So that what that actually means is the God of Israel is God. The God of Israel is God. And I think it's, it's interesting what's happening here. So he's had this encounter. There's a sense of resolution. He came safely. And actually what Jacob said, he says he came safely to the city of Shechem. And actually if you go back to Jacob's angelic encounter, right, with the stairway, what he actually says, he makes a vow to God. And he says, if you keep me safe and give me you know, give me sustenance, uh, I believe he says food and clothing, on my way, like, and bring me back here, you will be my God. And he actually vows also to give him a tenth of all he has. And here we say that he does indeed come back safely. Now, something dark is about to happen. So this is the end of, so there's, you know, there was no chapter, um, chapter headings in the original text. But this chapter, right here where it ends, verse 20, this chapter ends, and in the following chapter, chapter 34, 
it's interesting, the name of God is not going to be mentioned anywhere in chapter 34. The end, we have an ending where the God of Israel is God, and there's no name of God in chapter 34. And then right at the start of chapter 35, it actually starts up, it mentions God immediately. So I think that's worth noting, and there's something ominous happening here. From the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. So he's back in Canaan, the promised land which God promised to give to Abraham. He's bought this land, but as we'll see here, there's like a, I think there's a dark irony happening here because Jacob is paying them, is paying the sons of Hamor in order to live in, in this land. Uh, but the sons of Hamor are about to pay a very, a very dear price indeed as we're about to see. So, chapter 34. Um, and if you have a, uh, in your Bible, if it has, I don't know if these Bibles have like a little chapter heading, but it might say something like the defiling of Dinah or something like that. So already, okay, we know we're, we're about to go into something very, very heavy indeed. So, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And I just want to point out something right here. Dinah is some, we don't know exactly how old she is. Uh, I've read some pretty young estimates, but it seems like many people say, oh, she was probably a teen, uh, and her other brothers were probably in their 20s. When you think of it, she is an immigrant. She's a foreigner in, a foreign, in, this, in this land, and she's going out to see the women of the land. Uh, does not mention accompaniment or anything like that, but she's going out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. So some, there's different translations for that humiliated her. Uh, one, I've read, one translation I read of this, this portion said, he saw her, grabbed her, forced himself on her, and sexually assaulted her. Um, humiliated her, it's just apparently literally, and humbled her. So it's worth, so even there's just like, even in the, the way the, the Bible, the, the, te- the way the text talks about this, there's a sense of like a cascade of verbs, a cascade of actions. He saw her, and he seized her, and he lay with her and he humiliated her. There's this sense of just rapid, and most people, most commentators take this as a rape. Um, it doesn't, ex- like, there's some, there's some commentators who don't necessarily take it as that. Perhaps it's like a seduction of some sort. But in any case, there's a sense of, Dinah has been, I, I mean, I would feel comfortable saying, using the language of rape, of sexual assault in some sense, but there's some ambiguity around exactly what happened. But in any case, something happened which should not have happened which should not have happened. And yet, we see this guy Shechem, we see that right after he does this, this violent, like, taking of a woman, right after it says, and his soul was drawn to, the Hebrew is his soul stuck to or joined with. You know, and there's even a hearkening back, I would say, to Genesis, to this early chapters in Genesis here, where it talks about a man uh, supposed to unite with his wife, leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and they will be one f- flesh. And... Here we see, as so many times in Scripture, we see God's created order being turned upside down. There's a sense of sin perverting and like inverting the order of things, right? Like a dark parody of sorts. So we see that, and yet we also see, it says, he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And what a, I feel like what a, a, a resonant picture of human na- nature. He does this like apparently violent act. He like takes her, and yet, Shortly thereafter, he, like, 
he like falls in love with her and he speaks tenderly to her, tenderly to this, this woman who's, who is new to the land and who is just seized. And wow, that, is, that seems so true to human nature. We're like such a, such a mess, such a mixture. You know, the things we do, we don't just do all one, we don't just do all, okay, we're just all relentless violence. We have violence mixed up with tenderness in this confusing way. We're like a cocktail of mixed up emotions and desires. So, uh, this terrible thing has happened, and he's, he's asked his father, uh, who's the, if he's the prince of the land, I guess his father's the, the king, right? Get me this girl for my wife. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. It's interesting that he says he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So already there's an identification that Israel is not just this one guy, but this is the family of Israel. These are the tribes of Israel, right? Interesting, too, is that Jacob... It says he held his peace. He was silent. We're not told what his response was. We, you would expect a response of indignation or something like that, but we, we're not necessarily told um, anything about what he says. And actually, we, we aren't, uh, well, as we'll see, it seems like he's holding his silence. So you kind of expect him like, okay, once his sons come in, I guess he's going to talk. But we're not told anything there. We're not told that, that he talks indeed. But we are told that his sons, his sons are outraged, and they decide to take action. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and, you, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give the young woman to be my wife. So there we see, it seems like he's just head and he over heels in love, and he's like, I will do whatever you want. And there's a long and storied tradition in the Bible of kings and like uh, royal figures promising to give extravagant gifts to people in exchange for something, all the way from, you see that happening in Daniel with uh, Belshazzar asking for Daniel to translate uh, a mysterious prophecy that actually is a prophecy of Belshazzar's own death. You see that happening with Herod, um, Herod, in fact, promising his, his uh, I believe she was his daughter-in-law. Anyway, promising, uh, promising a young woman who's apparently, whose dance has pleased him, promising to give whatever she, he, she wants, and she asked for the head of John the Baptist. So there's a great story in, of, throughout, there's a great like rhythm, kind of a theme throughout scripture of people making these extravagant promises for something, and that something ends up being far more than they bargained for, far more than they bargained for. And if you, if you, as, you know, if you think of this scripture being read by just faithful Jews throughout history, right, when there's this question, the thing about give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself, ourselves, there's going to be like a flag that's going to go off like, uh-oh, this is bad, this is bad. Because again and again throughout scripture, especially in the Old, in the Old Testament, there's a, a warnings against intermarriage with the surrounding nations of Israel. Um, many warnings. So you even see it, you've seen it already in the text that just the fact that like it talks about... Um, uh, Jacob and Esau's parents being grieved by Esau taking Canaanite wives, wives from the surrounding area. And intermarriage is warned against, 
in the Old Testament again and again, particularly because it's linked to syncretism. Syncretism, so the blending of, two, of different religions, the bringing of, taking the religion of like, okay, following Yahweh, the God of Israel, and blending it with worship of pagan deities all around. So there's a sense of idolatry, of polluting the land with idols. So that's gonna kind of, if, for readers, readers of the Old Testament, Especially, you know, just you think of in, in ancient Israel, there's going to be a think of like a, a, an immediate reaction, just like, oh, no, 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 this is not a good idea. So, but there's this proposal to make marriages with us. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this one condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we, will take, give, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So note that word in verse 13. It says deceitfully. Something very interesting. The only other time this word was, is used in the Pentateuch is in Genesis 27 when it's actually Isaac describing Jacob, how Jacob deceitfully took Esau's blessing. So this word is all, the only other time this is used in, the, in this broad section of scripture is speaking of the sons of Jacob's father being deceitful. And that's a theme in scripture you see again and again, the sins of the fathers uh, that have not been dealt with residing in the sons. And the sons, here we see the son taking a f the father's sin and kind of kicking it up to the next, next levels, kicking it up a notch. So, uh, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this, one, on this condition will the men agree to, to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. So one, you think like, man, this guy, he, he, it says he did not delay to do the thing. So, I mean, the sense is like he is so in love with this woman and he desires her so much or perhaps just driven. doesn't seem like it's just lust. There's like a tenderness there. But he's so driven to it that he immediately was like, oh, like cut off the foreskin of my penis? Okay, I will do that immediately. I mean, this is it's pretty wild. And then, okay, and I'm going to tell the people of our kingdom, like, hey, we need to get circumcised immediately so that I can marry, so this prince can marry this woman. It's, it's a pretty tall order. It's, it's pretty wild. And remember that circumcision was given to Abraham, it was supposed to be a good thing, a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, and it's a sign of separation from like paganism, from the surrounding like kind of idolatries of the land. So it's supposed to be a good thing. It's supposed to be a good godly separation. And here, as we'll see, it's being used as like a weird bridal bartering price for some other motivations that are going on. So um, then it says, okay, Oh, in verse 23, so it said, he's telling everybody, okay, we need to get circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of, this city, of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. I think that line in verse 23, there's, I think there's an there's a ominous quality to that. 
will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Because I think, I think what's going on there is there's a sense in which they're about to be, uh, Israel, all of Israel is on the verge of being absorbed into this pagan nation, right? Being absorbed into the Canaanites. And there's a loss of identity at stake here. So what's at stake here is not merely, oh, it's not just like uh, a particular act for a young woman's honor, Dinah, and it's going to be reconciled and I'll be fine. There's like the whole sense of like, oh, is, is God's project of redemption, his promise to Abraham, is this teetering on the brink of actually the, this, the, the unique Israelite identity being erased? Absorption into the surroundings, into surrounding nations, into pagan customs, that's actually something that even in the, in the New Testament is spoken of. Now in the New Testament, the ethnic, I, the ethnic quality of that is completely abolished. All are welcome. Absolutely everybody's welcome. The door is wide open. And yet, the remaining quality is like, but don't lose like yourself who God made you, the covenant you have made with God. Don't lose who you are supposed to be. So everyone is invited in. Everyone's invited in, but there's a separation, not a separation like, oh, get away from me, you sinners. The separation is like, I serve God, the God of Israel. I serve Jesus. I'm not going to be bowing down to any, any number of pagan idols, right? So, verse, so all these people get circumcised. All the males are circumcised. On the third day when they were sore, and I can't imagine what kind of pain that is, when they were sore... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, and those are actually sons of, Di- of uh, Leah, who is Dinah's mother. So these are, these are like the full-blood um, brothers of Dinah. Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So there we're actually given a detail that has been has not been given to us before, that actually this whole time, apparently, Dinah was in Shechem's house. So he took her and lay with her, probably rape, it would, so it would seem, or something like that. So he took her, and then she's just been like, I guess, in his house. We don't know if it's voluntary or involuntary, if he's been sequestered or if she's been sequestered or what. But in any case, she's there. She's been there the whole time, and it, it would appear. So they take her out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and, all, and their wives, all that was in the, the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Which, wow, what a pithy and tragic and brutal ending to this chapter. And what also a dark inversion of what circumcision is supposed to be, right? Circumcision is supposed to be the sign of belonging and welcome to God's people, of lasting identity. And actually, uh, there's... The Bible speaks of, like, people outside the nation of Israel coming in and being circumcised, like, as a mark of belonging to God's people. But here it has been used as a trick for destruction, as a way of just making people vulnerable. And in good faith, I guess you could say, though I guess that's dubious, and they've done this thing in good faith, and then they just get absolutely slaughtered. It's interesting, too, that Jacob is silent about Dinah's defilement, but here he speaks out to his sons to say, like, you've look what you've done, look what you've done. And actually, uh, skipping ahead a little bit, 
at the end of the book of Genesis, we'll see Jacob actually has more to say here. Uh, Jacob, in fact, says he, there's, at the end of Genesis in 49, there's a time where he's speaking blessing over all his sons. He's dying. These are kind of, this is his final kind of fatherly word for them. His final kind of, in a sense, his final act as a patriarch, right? And he goes through each of the tribes and speaks over them a thing. And he speaks of Simeon and Levi. Uh, says, their, brother, their brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So they are denounced, and actually, those guys were up for potentially being the firstborn. And they and their brother Reuben, as we'll see later, they are out of the running. There's firstborn is who's going to kind of receive the blessing. It's essentially like what the descendants will be named through, the primary figure in the family, the one who like the mantle of patriarch will pass on to. And Simeon and Levi, because of their bloodlust, they're out. And Reuben's going to be out too, as we'll see in the next chapter. Uh, but interesting too to think, to see the, there's a pattern that we see in scripture again and again, and that we see it here, that God has like chosen Abraham. He's got this, this restoration, this redemption project for the whole world that is supposed to be a blessing to all nations. And yet, we see Abraham was chosen by God. We see him making sinful choices, which are kind of like become, in a, in a sense, a curse to the nations around him. He lies about his wife, um, being his wife, he says she's, she's his sister and tries to diminish that. And the, then when men, like when a king is kind of interested in her, there's like a sense in which the king realizes, like, oh, you've, you've put me in danger by telling me she's your sister. And then we see again and again, like we see these times where God's people, who are supposed to be a blessing, end up blowing it, end up making these mistakes. And yet, God is faithful and kind to them despite their evil. Uh, and you know, I think sometimes in a kind of simplified way, we can think of the Bible as, oh, the Bible is just this list of heroes to emulate. But actually, the Bible is full of deeply flawed people, deeply, deeply flawed people. And we see God actually using these flawed, sinful people, graciously calling them to himself and working through them. They are not, it's not a roll call of spotless heroes. The only spotless hero is Jesus, actually. He's the only one without sin in the Bible. He, he's the only one who doesn't, of one of the, you know, the major figures in the Bible where you don't see, like, him do something like, oh, he's, he's flawed. He's a sinner like me. Um, Jesus is the only one who's not, not like that. And I think the Bible actually, that's an invitation for us to consider, to think about, like, oh, what does it actually mean for me? That's good news, that God has been faithful. He's faithful to, this, the, to Israel, even though Israel performs outrageous acts sinful acts, acts that don't just like, they aren't just swept under the carpet, right? There are consequences, and those consequences play, play out, and yet God faithfully continues. He doesn't like remove his, his choice from Israel. He doesn't just say, well, your sons blew it, They're, you know, or Jacob, you, you lied, you're done. Instead, he like continues to pursue, continues to love, continues to be faithful, and in chapter 35, which we're not going to go into tonight, we're going to end with 34, but in chapter 35, we see God's faithfulness because immediately it says the next thing is picks up with God said to Jacob, arise up to, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
So we see, apparently, it seems like Jacob has actually failed in not curbing his son's bloodlust and not, like, seeking to, to remedy the situation, bring justice to the situation with Dinah. And in the end, his, his son's, their justice is like a brutal kind of, absolutely brutal kind of street justice. He has failed in that, and yet God still pursues him, and God still pursues his family. And that's good news. God's patience with sinful people is good news. And also, I think another dynamic, I, I think of the Bible as containing really an infinite amount of narrative threads, right? You think of like if you're watching a TV show, let's say a long-form TV series, right? You think there's like different kind of narrative threads that are going throughout, um, you know, like, oh, there's like a theme of family and, and, and legacy and bloodline and going in whatever, whatever show you're watching. And you see how those kind of themes will kind of wax and wane. They'll kind of like one, you don't see any ob- anything kind of popping up about it for a while. And then it'll kind of come rise to the forefront again. And you see them kind of interlacing and intertwining. And I think of the Bible in many ways is like containing, I, I think, in a sense, all the threads of human history, right? Running through the Bible. And you see the way that these threads entwine and enlace and how God works through them and how God actually brings resolution at the cross. That's how I think about it. And I think of like even just the, th- the thread of primal violence, primal violence. So Adam and Eve, they have, they rebel against God in the fall, and there's the fall. And then immediately uh, Cain and Abel, right? The first murder occurs. Cain kills his brother. And then you have Lamech making this just bloodthirsty promise like, I, if, anybody, if anybody kills Lamech, he will be avenged 70, or uh, wounds, believe, uh, Lamech. Actually, I'll read the actual, I'll read the actual promise because there is a, there's absolutely a brutality in it. In Genesis 4, it says, here we go. Uh, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So there's a sense of disproportionate, brutal, swift justice, swift, not more than justice, revenge, swift revenge. And there's this threat of violence that we th- see throughout the Bible starting there. The human beings, we, have a, we are prone to violence. We can layer, you know, have layers of civilization or kind of suppressing uh, me- mechanisms on top of it. But underneath, there is a violence that is born in part out of a desire to control. Also, I would, I would argue, and out of a desire to be like God to some degree, right? And as- also out of a desperation, a fear, right? But that thread of violence, which we see kind of, we see very clearly here, that thread, I would say, rises up in this chapter where we see this disproportionate violence for Dinah. That vo- thread of violence continues to run through the Old Testament into the New, and the, 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 the thread of blood being spelled, uh, spilled. And then in the end, we see that thread coming to its climax in Jesus, God himself entering into history this violence, this like whatever is going on in the heart of man, this sinfulness is unable to be remedied like by the sacrificial system. God, uh, God makes a covenant with Israel and Israel blows it again and again and again. And then finally God comes in and takes that violence, absorbs it into his own self, into his own body in order to forgive and heal. And that is good news. Good news indeed. It's good news when you look at the news. It's good news, I think, when you look at your own heart. And, you know, not that necessarily we're prone, but I think some of us, if we're honest, right, you can think of like the kind of like desires for violence which pop up in there. Or if you've ever had like, man, 
I think of myself on a somewhat more benign, like road rage, just driving. Maybe road rage is like an intense f- phrase for it, but just driving and the frustration I feel or just like somebody cuts me off and I just, I don't really want to let that go. I think I'm going to simmer on that for a while and just kind of taste the flavor of it. And, um, but we think of like the desires for revenge, the desire for justice, which is thwarted again and again. All of that finds its resolution in Christ because he loves us, because he's faithful when, even when we are broken, are flawed. It's good news for people like us.